This episode is brought to you by Officer Privacy. Right now, data broker websites are posting your name and address online, which puts you and your family in danger. Anti-cop organizations use this information to harass and even dox you and your families without you even seeing it coming. Officer Privacy is a law enforcement-owned and operated organization that specializes in removing your personal information from the internet. When you sign up with Officer Privacy, they will remove information from dangerous databases all over the world so that you can enjoy an extra layer of protection and privacy. Officer Privacy also monitors these sites so that if anyone tries to put up your information, they will take it back down. Reduce your chances of being a victim and protect you and your family's private information. Go to officerprivacy.com forward slash be effective to sign up and learn more. Effective Fitness Combatives has multiple in-person courses available. Texas, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, South Carolina, California, New Jersey, and Florida. Many more to come. Some classes are going to be open for a limited time as they do fill up relatively quickly. We have four-day instructor courses, which seems to be the most popular, two-day end-user courses, weapons-based entanglements, and of course, custom courses for you or your agency. Courses are post-certified in multiple states. For more information, click the link in the show notes for course breakdown and schedule. Online training and certifications are coming soon. Email j at efcombatives.com. That's J-J-A-Y at efcombatives.com for questions or to schedule a course. Welcome to the Be Effective Podcast, episode 63, Wendy Hummel. Wendy Hummel is a seasoned law enforcement officer with over 24 years of experience. She started her career in 96 as a special agent with the INS. She retired at the rank of detective after 21 years of service with the Wichita Police Department, where she spent the majority of her career working crimes and investigations. Wendy's area of expertise is in officer health and wellness, peer support, and resiliency. She's currently the health and wellness coordinator for a sheriff's office, where she's committed to helping her fellow first responder learn tools for mindfulness, resiliency, and health to enhance their well-being and job performance. Throughout this episode, we discuss certain tools people can use to become more resilient as a law enforcement officer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review. If you're new to the show, be sure you are subscribed. Without further ado, episode 63 Wendy Hummel. Enjoy. Wendy, thank you for coming on. I know it's a little bit early for you. What time is it over there? I get up early. So when you say early, like that's relative. I usually okay, get up at five thirty in the morning. Yes. <laughs> so. That's I'm still I'm still asleep at that time. I usually have just gone to bed probably a couple hours prior, so it's probably why I'm still asleep. But um Awesome. Can you uh, tell listeners who you are, a little bit about your background, and then like what you're currently working on? Yeah. So Wendy Hummel, and I am, I guess I'll start here. I'm a mother of two beautiful daughters. That's beautiful. the, pri- I'm, I'm going in order of priority here. Uh, uh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. 16 and almost 13. I've been married to my husband um, for about 22 years, but we've been together for about 26. And then Career-wise, I'm retired law enforcement. I retired from the Wichita Police Department as a detective in 2019. Currently work for the sheriff's office in a full-time capacity as the health and wellness coordinator. Been doing that since I retired. I also have my own podcast. It's called Guns and Yoga. I am a yoga instructor, mindfulness meditation, and um, I don't know. I think we'll probably just... Stop there. Those are all the things. <laughs> Those are all great priorities and all great things in your life. You know, and, and so how long were you in law enforcement before you retired? 
So I started in 1996. And so I started a little bit like reverse what most people do. I, I started on the federal level. So I got my master's in criminal justice in at, the, at FIU Miami, and I always wanted to be a fed. And I had some things happen because of my eyesight. So I started out, I was going to be a secret service agent that fell through. So I went to grad school and did an internship for what was called INS, Immigration Naturalization Service. It's now under the Department of Justice, turned into ICE. Now it's Department of Homeland Security. It's kind of gone through this evolution. So after I got my master's, after the internship, I was offered a position and I went back to where I'm from, which is New York. And in during that time in the academy, when I trained for that position, I met my husband. And so I was a special agent for a couple of years in New York. My husband's from the Midwest. He originally is from St. Louis, but was uh, working in Wichita, Kansas, a place I had never heard of before. (laughs) And uh, long story short, I ended up leaving the Fed job and coming to Wichita, not planning to stay. And really, honestly, uh, I always wanted to be a street cop. My grandfather was a NYPD police officer. And I ended up becoming a police officer, becoming a detective, and then never leaving Wichita and then ending up retiring here. And here you are, Wichita, Kansas. Still, yes. Still, still <laughs> this day. So you, so you were born and raised in New York, correct? That's right. I was born and raised, I was born in the Bronx and raised in New Jersey. Oh, wow. So at about first grade, my parents are hardcore New Yorkers, lots of family in New York. Um, We moved to to New Jersey, but I was always in New York and I ended up, I went to college in New Jersey. I graduated from Rutgers undergrad in New Brunswick, New Jersey, if anybody's familiar with that. Sure. Do you miss New York? I do. I'm glad I don't live there anymore, but I really do miss it. And it's funny because my kids are, you know, they've been born, raised in Kansas. They keep talking about how much they want to go visit New York and they want to go meet a lot of their relatives that they don't know. So, so we're probably going to go back, uh, but I do miss it, but I don't, I'm glad I don't live there. Yeah, I, I can, I can relate. I have some family up, up that way and they try to avoid New York, I guess, cause they're, you know, they live around there and they're like, yeah, we don't go to the city unless we absolutely have to. But, but Kelly who works with EFT, she's from, um, she's from Ithaca mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. and it's absolutely beautiful up there. She's a redneck, my favorite redneck. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's 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 great. So being a Fed and then transferring over to the federal side, how was that transition for you? I mean, obviously you probably had to go to a different academy, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, you know, obviously going from the Fed job where it's not really a street job, I would assume, correct? Right. To work in the street. How was that transition for you? Was it what you expected? Was it difficult? Was it, you know? It was way you? better, to be honest. Yeah. So like I <laughs> wanted to be, I wanted to be a street cop and a detective. That was the work I was drawn to. But I did the Fed thing because it was more money. It was, you know, it was just kind of fell into, it just was something that I was drawn to. It's just more appealing. Yeah. On paper. And, on paper. Right. But the the work itself that I was doing initially, at least with INS in New York, it was like lots of sweatshop raids and doing that kind of stuff. And it just wasn't really fulfilling for me. And I'm not saying if I would have stayed in that job, that that's what I would have continued to do my whole career. But I, uh, when I went back, uh, when I came to Wichita, went through the academy, I knew I was in the right place. I loved, I mean, I worked on third shift. I worked overnight, got to work all the the stuff that maybe new cops want to work, you know, where it was a little bit more violent, shootings, disturbances. 
and then became a detective, which was always my goal is to investigate person's crimes. So I always knew, and this is going to make me, you're going to realize how old I am when I say this. Sure. So growing up, I watched shows like The Bionic Woman, Jamie Summers. You probably don't know what I'm talking about. I do not, but, <laughs> but carry on. Uh, Charlie's Angels, OG Charlie's okay, Angels, I know that, okay. like Farrah. Following right? that. Okay. And then, yeah, shows like that. So I, from a very young age, you know, some people know when they're young what they want to do. That was, I was one of those people. And I knew I wanted to be a detective. I wanted to investigate crimes, wanted to get, you know, seek justice, you know, put the bad guys away, all that kind of stuff. So after five years on the street, I tested and got promoted and knew I would stay in that rank. I never had any aspirations to become a supervisor or to promote beyond the rank of detective. So most of my career was spent um, in person's crimes, gang, sex, homicide, all those, all the fun ones. Yeah. And so you obviously worked for a pretty, a pretty good size agency, correct? Yeah. About 600 plus sworn in. That's pretty it, big. It is pretty big. Um, more than people would think for Wichita, Kansas and the crime's yeah. gotten worse since I've retired. So. Yeah. I, I can imagine. I, I don't know much about Wichita, Kansas, but I would assume there's probably some major, some major drug waste through there. Cause it's in the right in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. And you're not too far from Texas, so probably guys got. I have somebody that work in um that work in St. Louis. Um, I guess it's not too far, and some guys that work in Oklahoma. So and they stay really busy with the drug stuff. So yeah, and I, I never assume. worked dope specifically. Of course, a lot of the things that I worked were tied into that. Of course, inevitably. But yes, there's a lot of guys from my former agency and even my current, the current agency that they're on federal task force. So there's a, there's a sure. lot of that going on. So that's actually a pretty big agency. So um, I want to ask you a question about, about being a female in law enforcement. Cause obviously there's not many of you that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have really strong opinions about that, but um, what was your experience? Let's just say kind of starting out and then towards the end of your career, like, did you experience like negative light, positive light, you know, I mean, obviously you carried your own weight you know, stuff like that, but like kind of what was your experience of being a woman in more of like a male dominated career field? Yeah. So all of the things I can probably say, yes, I experienced. So here, (laughs) when I first started out, um, when I was in the Academy in 1998 for the Wichita police department Academy, there were about, I think it was seven females, which at that time was a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Yes. So that was kind of nice because I had an experience of going through and starting with other women and, Uh, you know, as it ended up, a lot of those women ended up leaving the agency within five, six years. So there's that. But then when I got out on the street, when I worked up, like I said, third shift in the north part of our town, there was only one other woman. And so there weren't a lot starting out. So I'll tell you that it was not easy. And I almost quit within my first few years. Uh, And there's, there's a lot of different reasons for that. But so it was rough and I do think that it's different now, but it is definitely a lot harder. So you do have to prove yourself when you're a new cop, everybody, you know, that's kind of standard, but I did feel like there was a little bit more pressure to do that. And that was okay with me because I was personally, I was never one of those that was afraid to get involved and, and it took a little bit, but you know, then people get to know you just like they, you know, they know everybody else and they trust you and they feel comfortable with you backing them. So, uh, but as, you know, as I went through my career, what was interesting was that a lot of the guys that I started to work with, they're kind of like my brothers, 
most of my experience was really positive. Once I kind of got over that initial, initial hump of a couple people kind of being quite honestly, dicks, um, the first few (laughs) years I was out there and I have always like been the kind of person that, um, and I don't even know where this came from. I'm glad I have this quality is that if I have, if somebody has a problem with me, I'm okay with confronting you about it, but not in a negative way. Just like, Hey, what's going on? I noticed when we were on this call together, you didn't say anything to me. What's going on? Is there something I've done? And it's funny because guys, most guys, they don't know what to do with that. (laughs) Yeah, no, they're, they're not good at that. So I did that, got through that rough time, ended up transferring off of third shift and then eventually promoting. But I did have a pretty bad experience early on. But so what was funny too, is that what I didn't expect is I almost expected some of that from the guys, uh, but I didn't expect it from the other women. Now, for the most part, all the women that I have worked with, I would say 98% of all females I've ever worked with, it's been great. We support each other. um, We've gotten along. Uh, but there is a couple, and I've now since learned this called queen bee syndrome, right? Where um, there's this competitive nature between females. So, which is not the way that I am. I'm all about supporting other women. Right. So I've kind of gone through the gamut and the experience. And some of it too is, is kind of self-imposed. We put pressure on ourselves, but it does come from somewhere. I mean, women are um, a little bit more emotional. We wear our heart on our sleeves in general. You know, guys can have those qualities too. Sure. So what was difficult for me was that you have kind of this added layer of having to prove yourself. And I remember several times, especially as a detective, where there would just be certain things that would really weigh on me and I could not talk about it. I'd have to suck it up just like guys do. And so I feel like because I was a girl, and I, again, I don't know if this is just this added pressure I put on myself, you know, combined with this whole, this is part of the job, deal with it, that we're, we're taught early on. But I would keep a lot of things to myself. And I rarely really talked about it, even with other women that I was was close with at the time. So um, kind of that was a very long answer. So I've kind of gone through the spectrum of different experiences. But I will tell you that most of my experience as a female in law enforcement I've had great experiences with the guys that I've worked with and the yeah, women. And that's good. I think that's how it should be. People don't realize that you have to elevate others. That's the only way that mm-hmm. this team is. It's, it's a team effort. And I, I, I think some people kind of forget that sometimes. It's like playing a sport. Like you can't play football with just a quarterback because right. it's not going to end up very well for that quarterback. You got to have, you know, your whole D line and your O line and all these other players and all these other coaches that are looking at you, you know, kind of mm-hmm. correcting. So, that's actually a really interesting approach because I've, you know, I've heard, I've heard both. I've heard, man, it, it's, it was tough. And then I've heard, um, you know, just like you said, it was, it was fine, but you kind of had to prove yourself. And I think that, but again, that's, that's just common. Like you're gonna have to prove yourself in this profession, regardless of your gender. Um, this is not an easy profession, so it'll chew you up and spit you out real quick if you let it. Yeah. That's great. So when you got to detective, I mean, obviously you guys probably have a bunch of detectives. I would assume with 600 sworn, you guys mm-hmm. probably have what, like 15 or 20 detectives. Yeah, a little bit more than that. A little more, yeah. Okay, a hundred plus. A hundred plus detectives. Okay, yeah. so so were they just so you did homicide, sex crimes, and mm-hmm. and and other things like where was it was it all separated or like did you guys like ever go into specific divisions? Yeah, it's so it, it is specific. So I know with some agencies, um, like the one that I'm currently at, it's more general investigations. Like there's a persons and a property side, and everybody does everything. 
the agency I worked at, um, we had persons crimes and property crimes, but, and we also had like the admin, like day narc guys and the narcs, of course, but I never worked there. We had persons and property. When I first got promoted, I worked in auto theft for one month. And then there was an opening over on the other side of the floor is what we called it. And so persons crimes had different divisions. They had DV sex, homicide, gang, EMCU, exploited missing children unit. It has now shifted a little bit since I've left, but back then that's how it was. So I uh, went to DV sex right away after about a month. And because not everybody wants to work those cases either. Um, Negative. So, yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. So, so it wasn't back then the opening was there. I put in and I, and I got to go there pretty quickly. And so most of my career, when I say that I only spent one month in auto theft. And then after that, it was all persons. So after about four ish years, I um, went to the gang unit. And what's interesting is like on the person side of the floor, we would all help each other. So if a murder happened, you would get called in potentially if you worked in sex or gang to help out. So I was getting this call out experience with different cases, even though my primary responsibility was DV sex. So when the gang unit position came open, um, I got, I kind of got approached and asked to go over there and I did, and I was nervous and, but I really liked it. It was something that I never aspired to necessarily do work with gang members, um, or work gang stuff. But, uh, I've really, really liked that, that spot. And then from there, after a couple of years, there is when I went to homicide, worked there for a few years, but didn't spend as much time in homicide as I would have really liked to, uh, because then I started having kids and, I had a lot of problems like medically, physically. And now I look back and I know a lot of it probably had to do with the kind of work I was doing. And so once I was able to have my first daughter, which wasn't necessarily very easy, I, after about two and a half years in homicide, I left and went back to DV sex because I felt like it was a little bit less of a call out load. So. Yeah, that's uh, and those are two not very easy fields to be a detective in, right? No. You know, so I kind of want to dive into this a little bit too. So after having kids, did you feel different responding to calls? Was it maybe like, how did you digest scenes and things you saw after having kids? Because I know for me, it affected me mm-hmm. after I had my first kid. And it was, it was like, I, I knew it was happening. I just didn't know why. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was always a question. So did you have a similar experience or was yours different? No, similar, but probably now. Like I can, I'll explain why it was a little bit different, even more so, I think. Sure. So for me, I had trouble having kids. So my husband and I had trouble like getting pregnant and staying pregnant. So I had a couple of miscarriages, which that in and of itself was very difficult to go through that and then be working certain cases, right? Because even though um, I didn't work necessarily in EMCU with kids, I still dealt with a lot of cases that involved the death of children. And so all of these things were going on while I was going through all of that, which now looking back and yeah, and understanding how all this stuff works, I was like, wow, no wonder why I was all screwed up. And then, (laughs) and then once I did get pregnant and stay pregnant, I developed something called preeclampsia, which means I was really sick and long story short, I got hospitalized and both of my daughters were premature. So I'm in the same hospital in the NICU with my girls that, well, my first, my first daughter was two pounds. She was in there for about 
55 days. So I'm in the same hospital, not knowing if she's going to live at first, going through that kind of a trauma. And it's the same hospital that for years in the ER, I would go and work my cases and shooting. So it was just really surreal. And so once everything kind of went, when she got out of the hospital and, and went home, that was another really pivotal time for me as a, as a mom, because I'm like, do I stay with this job? I, at that time I was there for eight years. Um, or do I keep going? And so it was really tough because her being premature, it was hard. Her immune system took, took a while to catch up. So at that time I worked in homicide and I'd have to work these cases. And it seemed like right after my daughter was born and I was in homicide and I had just gone through all of that, it seemed like I caught every kid case. Like even though it was, yeah. So SIDS or accidental deaths at daycare or, you know, murders. Right. So I can't tell you if I, how I would have felt if things were not like that, but I think given all of the things that were going on for me personally, and then working those kinds of cases was really, you know, it, looking back, it, it was hard. It definitely was hard. So yeah, I definitely think your experiences change you regardless. The Be Effective podcast is brought to you by Effective Fitness Training. EFT is a performance-driven fitness program designed to improve individual performance. Created by our team of physical therapists, strength conditioning coaches, nutrition specialists, and a team of active and former law enforcement with over 100 years combined experience. EFT is developed for those who want the most comprehensive fitness plan available. Use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 10% off the life of your membership. I think kids do weird things to people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I have, uh, one of my last calls was, was a, it was an 11-year-old who drowned uh, in the mm-hmm. river. And we, we recovered and my sergeant couldn't, he has, he has girls and he couldn't even, he was like, Hey, can you guys confirm? He's like, I can't. And mm-hmm. I was like, yes, sir. Not a problem. You know, I'd have kids at the time and you know, you, you're, you're on just like work mode. Like you just go into work mode and then yeah. you just, you know, you just do what you got to do and then you do it. And then when I had my first kid and I was like, man, swim lessons are coming soon. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was just one of those things where it, uh, side note, my, uh, wife's a NICU nurse. So mm-hmm. she's, she's been a nurse for about 10 years there. So a lot of respect for your daughter. She's a fighter. Cause I, I've seen, and I've, I've, uh, heard stories and it's, uh, it's incredible, um, that life can be that small. Um, yep. You're right. And you know, again, that was my first experience as a mom. I had no idea what to expect and it was, you're, you're right. Because I do feel that way about both of my girls. Cause the same thing happened three and a half years apart. I am, I already feel like my kids have nothing to prove to me because they've already fought to to be in this world and with no residual issues, which is amazing. And yeah, but I can understand where you're coming because just my wife being pregnant, working in a NICU and all you see is sick babies all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talk about paranoia. It was to a point where I was like, okay, maybe you should go to a different unit or something. She's like, but all I know is babies. And Anyways, you know, she had kind of like that, that, that same somewhat of like a psychological thing is she's around the sickest of the sickest kids. She works in one of the biggest hospitals in South Carolina and, you know, it, it would mess with her mentally. And so mm-hmm. again, I, I, I've never been a mother and I'll never be a mother props for you for being able to, to be mentally strong through that. Cause I know that was probably very difficult, but, um, you know, which kind of wants me to lead into this next part of kind of what you do now and kind of what you're getting into is, is more of that mental resiliency and, you know, having 21 years and majority of that time being a detective in what most would consider a very barbaric unit sometimes. 
and you see things that that aren't normal, right? Let's just be honest here. Like this job is not like that's why I make posts on police posts and call it patrol things because things you see on patrol are just like feel like no, you just made that up. It's like no, that actually happened, you know. And and there's you could probably talk to any cop in a somewhat of a major city and they've got crazy stories that people probably wouldn't believe actually happened. So can you tell listeners kind of what you're doing now and kind of, you know, what your podcast is about? You have a great podcast. I was on her podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Great conversation about, you know, what you're doing and uh, how you're continually helping the profession even after retiring. And you're not just giving the profession a middle finger. You're actually wanting to give back. And so how are you doing that? It was kind of like a, obviously a progression, but because of partially what I, what I just described, what I went through personally, you know, things got a little bit worse too. Things were very stressful trying to balance what I just told you at home. Cause obviously I didn't leave my position. I didn't leave after eight years. I, I ended up sticking it out. So balancing that at home with my husband's law enforcement career, my career, having no family here, I would say for 10 years, my life was chaos, but I didn't realize it. And so there's that expression of, you know, you're, when you're swimming in it, you don't know you're swimming in it because that's right. all you know. <laughs> and so that oh, was my boy. life. Yeah, oh. that was my life. And so, you know, certain things started to to rear their ugly head. Like I had some panic attacks. A lot of people that I, there's most people that I know even now probably don't even know this about me, but I share it because I think it's it's helpful panic attacks, like lot. I mean, I had my husband take me to the ER one time because I thought I was having a stroke. It was all stress and, um, just, you know, not sleeping, just lot, lots of things like that, that unfolded for me personally, physical issues, lots of issues with like digestion, immune issues. Sure. And then obviously I think my, my career impacted my endocrine and hormone system, which is why you I don't I say, had, yeah, I know. Isn't that, I wish I would have known that back then, but I think that's why I had, or could have had all the issues that I already kind I of went kids. into. Absolutely. So, so as these things kind of started to unfold for me, my entryway into the realization that things needed to change was yoga. So my husband and I, before we had our kids, we were like hardcore, like we would work out. We did adventure racing back when it first started. We do these overnight races. We were always very physical, mountain biked. So I was always like that type A hard charging kind of a workout person, get up early in the morning and go sweat and burn calories. But when I first started doing yoga, it was after my first daughter and I went to hot yoga to again, lose weight, get my stomach back. Cause I had a C-section, no core, no strength. Oof, yeah. Couldn't even hold a plank without shaking. Like it was bad. Yeah. So I did it for that reason, but I soon realized when I started going to yoga that it was a lot more. And so that can be a conversation in and of itself. But for me, my entryway was, was yoga. And after a couple of years, I was like, man, I feel really good. And it helped me in my job. Like I noticed I was more patient, I realized how it changed me off the mat, just doing certain practices in yoga class. Besides getting back in shape too, it was all this other stuff, right? And then it dawned on me because what I had been experiencing, and then of course my coworkers, my friends, my brothers and sisters, I noticed were struggling in different ways too that we didn't really talk about. But I have had partners that have had mental issues, depression, I've had people, I've had coworkers that have had cancer. There's so many different things. I think everybody can probably relate. And I just, Absolutely. it kind of dawned on me that, you know, we do a shitty, shitty job organizationally and personally of taking care of our people. We expect it of ourselves, but then 
we also ask people to do a lot of unspeakable things, but yet we don't really do much to support them mentally, physically, and emotionally. So all of this kind of just started hitting me and my shift, my passion for what I did with the community and the cases that I investigated shifted to the people that I work with. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to start focusing on teaching people how to take care of themselves, resilience, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. So that kind of started, I would say, the last three to five years before I retired and started teaching yoga at work, went through a yoga for first responders training, went through my own yoga teacher training. Um, and yes, people laughed and made fun of it initially, still do a little but but not nearly like it was. Yeah, well, they're losers. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, so anyhow, bottom line is it was just this transition. And then it hit me over the head, like we right. have got to do more. And so ever since then, that's really been my focus. And I didn't know at the time when I retired exactly what it was going to look like, but I knew that this is what I needed to focus on for myself and for, for the profession. And back then, you know, this was not very popular to talk about because we were still really, really entrenched in that my generation, like suck it up. It's part of your job. We don't talk about that. We, we drink our problems away. We go to choir practice, all that kind of stuff. And that really motivated me to figure out a way to do something. And so I just like in my detective fashion, I just like started reaching out and investigating what other places were doing. That's kind of what I did. I went down the rabbit hole of different agencies that had wellness programs. What are you doing physically, mentally, peer support, therapy, all that kind of stuff. And that's really how it started for me. That's super important. I think with your 20 plus years of experience in law enforcement, it actually brings weight to that because it's like, oh, well, you know, I was having these issues, these issues, stress, stress is a bitch. Stress huh. is, is a massive asshole. And if you don't control it, it can destroy you. It will destroy you if you let it, you know? And I, I think that, you know, with your experience saying that, this is, this is why I'm honored to have you on the podcast is because it's not... It's very rare you get someone that's willing to talk about, you know, their 20 plus years and, and really how it's affected them and and coming up with solutions or options for those that that may not realize it now. You know, the fact that you were I mean, you were how many years in before you realized that this was an issue? Yeah. Like, why don't we fix it earlier? Why don't we right. address the issue earlier? So what are you providing for people that are maybe wanting to look into this or maybe like, Oh, this is stupid, but I'll read it anyways type deal. You know, that's kind of how it is, is you just got to plant that seed. So how are you planting that seed and informing people? So to, to back up just a little bit after sure. I re retired, which by the way, that's a whole thing in and of itself, retirement. Um, that was not planned. I had always planned to retire at 55 and not 50, but this is, this will tie into to what I'm talking about here in a minute. I retired very, very poorly. I am the poster child for how not to retire. <laughs> and even though I had started really learning some of the skills like about resilience, mental, emotional, physical, sure. managing stress, I was in such a bad spot after I retired that those things, knowing them and being able to apply them wasn't enough. And it really taught me even more that the tools, sometimes the tools that you have in place, even sure. though they might be working, don't kind of discount therapy, peer support programs. And so those are some of the things that I started to do for myself, which gave me even a wider lens of, of things that can be helpful. So to answer your question, I started a podcast. So I had always wanted to start a podcast ever since 2017, when I heard a girl, Ashley Flowers, talk about her podcast, which is Crime Junkie. 
I don't know if, know if you ever heard of it or not. I have not. I'm sure my wife has because she's a white girl. So. <laughs> so 2017, side note, went to a Crime Stoppers conference, heard this girl talk about how much money she's making and how she's able to help her Crime Stoppers program. I'm like, that's a cool concept. And I kind of yeah. tabled it because I have no idea how to do it right. But I felt like this would be a really good platform to talk about the things that that we're talking about right now. So I started that almost two years ago. And then I also really started to locally investigate what's happening and how are different agencies supporting their people. So fast forward, I currently work as the health and wellness coordinator at the sheriff's office. And so one of the things that we do is we plant the seed and we start this from day one with the recruits. So as we've talked about, this stuff is not something that you and I probably ever heard of in the academy. We didn't really talk about it very much. Our recruits get the resilience training. They get, you know, stress and fitness for duty training. They, they get peer support. They get all of this. We bring, their, we bring their families in. We open this up and we explain everything to the families. We now have a therapist that works for the agency. So we start from day one, which I think is huge because when things come up, throughout the course of their career and their job, they understand that there's resources in place and they're not afraid to use the resources, which is the really, really big important piece here is that we don't want there to be a disconnect between we have this stuff, but are you actually taking advantage of it and utilizing it and applying it so that as you go through your career, you deal with this stuff and not just stuff it and compartmentalize like a lot of us do and then deal with it when it's time to retire and not until that time. So that's just a really quick and dirty version of, of kind of what we do, what I do now in my full-time job. And then some of what I do when I'm not at work too. Yeah. I think it's amazing. You know, just like you said, starting it early and just making it accepted that, Hey, it's okay to, to talk about things. And if you're feeling weird, don't, you know, don't freaking drink yourself asleep every night. Let's, let's just talk about it. Cause I, I think too, like with more of this, again, like at least like our approach from the EFT side is more of like the science of, of stress and what stress does and how it affects mm-hmm. your sleep and your recovery and your muscle building and your ability. And then long-term, just like you said, I've, I've had a lot of friends that have had a, they developed like colitis and like all kinds of things in their stomach and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And doctors like, well, the cause of it's probably more stress induced and diet induced and, you know, there's so much that that this profession is not doing for their officers and it can be frustrating. So I think it's great that your sheriff's office has a health and wellness coordinator, a good one at mm-hmm. that. Um, a lot of agencies don't. They don't have anything. I don't know if it's a resource issue or it's a command issue. Speaking of that, like uh, for those that may be interested in maybe developing a health and wellness program, how did you pitch this? Because I you started it, correct? In your, in your agency or this, this, this sheriff's office? Yeah. Well, I, I'm the first person in this position, but in I this can, position. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So how did you kind of initiate that? So the sheriff who created the position, um, just to provide a little bit of foundation, he was a captain on the police department, the same agency that I retired from. So I've known him for quite some time. So he knew about some of the things that I had started at the police department before I retired. So when he initially, when I retired and he asked me to come work at the sheriff's office, originally in a different position, which I'll be honest, he knows this too. I didn't really want to do. It was um, a substance abuse mental health coordinator helping to start this program. And it wasn't something I wanted to do. 
but I was in such a bad spot after retirement. I was like, I'm just going to do something and figure it out. But during that time, it was about eight months before I, I got this other position. He was still having me collaterally teach the recruits yoga for first responders, teaching an eight hour resilience class. I had gotten a grant from our DA to do this train the trainer. And I was still doing those things. So kind of before he hired me or created this position, he also started to notice at the agency that I work at now that there are people that were struggling. Um, we had a lot, we've had nine, now 10 line of duty deaths at the agency that I currently work at. And there were just different things that started to surface. And he knew that he wanted to do something to support the people that worked at the agency, but he just didn't know what. So he knew that this was something sideline that I was doing and interested in. And so after about, you know, a year of me, you know, introducing him to people, explaining certain things to him, telling him that other agencies have this coordinator model, that they hire therapists, they have peer support. He said that he wanted to create this. So kudos to him because there's not a lot of agency leaders, especially in the Midwest right now, quite honestly, sure. that are willing to do stuff like that. And so he created the position and that's how it all started. This was about three plus years ago. And so I am the first person in the position. And, you know, hopefully the idea is that this will continue and, you know, grow long after I'm gone. Sure. That's great that that sheriff is willing to, to really invest in that. And again, I always tell people it only takes one person to make a change mm -hmm. that can be very beneficial in the agency. It takes one person that is reasonable. And what, <laughs> yeah. And one thing that's really important because, you know, this is one of the things that really, I think, helped him see the big picture. And this is actually something I do also when I'm not in my full-time job. I also go around and I instruct and teach at other agencies. In fact, I'm going to go to Nassau County, New York in a week. But when I talk to agency leaders about this, bottom line is you can't look at wellness as a siloed, separate program. Wellness is something that needs to be infused into the ethos of the agency. If you're talking about retention, if you're talking about morale, if you're talking about good community service, if you're talking about officers that are going to be ethical and make good decisions, it all starts with taking care of the people and wellness. And so, so when you just kind of bottom line it like that, and you say, this is something that, that needs to be everywhere in the agency, then that really seems to click and make sense with people. And, and unfortunately, you know, with the people who are in charge of the budget and the money, there, there are certain things that are important to them. And so I have really started to gather, I, I utilize a lot of research and explain it in a way to say, this is what can really be the benefit here. To me, of course, this is why I do it. The most important thing is the people. Like, that's why I do it. It's everything. But, but big picture wise, organizationally and community wise, it's, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't want to do something like that. It's kind of a no brainer to me, but I think others still need. It some should be a no brainer to everybody. Yeah. So if you look at it, even just like, let's just look at it from a business perspective, not even because that's how, that's how agencies are run. They're, they're run like businesses, right? You are a number. Like I remember uh, before I left, my position was already filled, mm -hmm. right? Like they, they just mm -hmm. next, it's like a, it's just like an old machine. They're going to just replace a part and keep moving, you know, your health and wellness, like without people, Law enforcement doesn't exist, right? Like your agency doesn't exist. So from like a business perspective, it's like the who, not how, right? Like, you know, like we talk about who's important. Well, the officers are important. Okay. How do we keep them, you know, ready? How do we keep them mentally sharp, physically prepared? 
these things, right? Because without that foundation, you have nothing. And it's okay for things like flashlights and cars and stuff that you can easily replace to break and fix, right? We can't get to the point where a human breaks and then we have to fix them. That's when you start to run into issues where excessive force, drinking on duty, all these things that that do happen. People can't break. And I think if you look at it like that, if you value people, if you value your officers, you will understand that preventative maintenance is important Mm -hmm. in everything you do. There's a reason you get oil changes. There's a reason why you clean your gun, you know, after you, you know, go to the range for, you know, a few hours or even a few times, whatever, like you do these things to prevent so that they function smoothly. People are the same way, right? If you're not looking into them and it's crazy too. I had an agency call yesterday with an agency in California, me and Jack who works with us. And, uh, I asked, I asked the guy, I said, Hey, uh, do you guys have any incentives for guys to not that like, you know, obviously not dying on duty and not having a heart attack and staying in shape should be an incentive enough to do things. But I was like, do you guys offer anything for your guys and girls? And no. Okay. That's why I said it was okay. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to add because it's like, okay, well, if you want to make something a priority, like what, it, what motivates people? That's kind of my thing. So my question to you is how do you motivate those? You know, some people need external incentives. They need money, time off, promotion, whatever the case may be. How do you motivate people that are just like, ah, I'm fine right now. And then before they get to it too late. So how do you kind of get them started? Like what's the motivation? That's like it's tough. That's the million dollar question. So if you yeah, figure it, it out, can you let me know? <laughs> I'll let you know. I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks. So it's not easy. So there are there are those people, as you know, that are just self-motivated. They do it because that's the way they are. They know it's good to take care of themselves in different ways. Some of those people work out. Some of those people have other things that they do to take care of their mental, emotional, physical, spiritual health and resilience. But then there's those that that do not. And it's especially if you're trying to try something that they don't normally do, there's a lot of resistance. So so I think what we've decided to do, at least this is what makes the most sense, is start with the new people and build from there. Because, you know, we don't have an incentive program right now at the agency that I retired from. We do. I think it's like a hundred bucks unless with inflation, hopefully they raised it. Like if you pass a certain (laughs) PT test, you get a hundred dollars. I know some agencies give time off, but beyond that, I haven't really heard of other ways that you, you can do this. I've also heard from leadership that sometimes the challenges in forcing people to meet certain standards. There can be legal issues and things like that. Yeah, that's the biggest issue. Uh, I personally, I mean, I think it's really hard because knowing on the one hand, we know these things now. We know that we need to, to be physically, mentally, and emotionally fit, right? In all these areas. And if we're not, we're not able to do our job as well. We already know that we're exposed to these things. So to me, it's like, why wouldn't this be the expectation? But on the flip right. side of that, I know it's hard to get people in. So it's there's a lot of different layers to this conversation. Uh, and so yeah. so it's, you know, there's there's no easy fix. Yeah. It's like it's just like a two-faced type situation. Cause again, like retention's down, hiring's down in most places. Uh it's hard to keep guys and guys that are already there, you don't want to lose them. So it's just like, oh, you don't want to do this PT test? Okay, well, whatever. You know, and then People want change, like the general public wants change. People want change in law enforcement. They want better police officers. They want this and that. It's like, okay, well, you're paying some cops thirty five thousand dollars a year, and you expect fucking perfection. Mm-hmm. And it's 
I always tell guys, I'm like, hey, do you want like a do you want a subpar pilot? No, fly on your plane. No, okay, you want a subpar plane? Okay, well, what do pilots get paid? Paid very well, right? Well, you want somebody that's not subpar, you got to pay them very well. Like training's expensive, gear's expensive, maintenance is expensive. Like to maintain a human, like to train a human, mm-hmm. it is expensive to do. And I think that if, if we approach it that way, but just like you said, there's the motivation factor is what also blows my mind. It's like, hey. If you're not properly trained or you're not trained well enough or you're not in good cardiovascular condition, you can die on the side of the road. Okay, not motivation enough? I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> like, like there's no amount of money or promotion that would be like, man, I'm now I'm motivated to work out. It's like, no, okay, I just want to be able to live my life and hang out with my kids when I retire, right? And that's like, you don't want to retire a broken body. Mm-hmm. You're really big on too. And I think it's, I think it's important because there's not a lot of people with your level of experience that are trying to inform people of, hey, I did it the wrong way or I did it not a great way. Mm-hmm. Here's what I learned. Please learn from me. What is your approach for those people that are, are maybe looking to exit the profession after about you know 15 or 20 years or even more? So everything that I really do is what works for me. And when I tell people like, so whether it be at work or whether it be, you know, I, I'm also a health coach, whether it be that, or if I'm teaching a yoga class with my, you know, with people at work or in my group, it's all about what works for you and finding the best way that, because everybody's different. Each one of us is unique and we have our own unique thing and makeup and different things are going to work for different people. But the bottom line, here's what I do know is that you need to have like a multiple prong approach to all of this because our physiology, our mindset, our emotions, all of it is connected. Like, you know, people, when, when I used to say, oh, you know, the mind body connection, gut brain connection, oh, that's bullshit. I don't believe in that. Well, no longer is that bullshit. You know, that quote, woo woo bullshit, breathing and meditation. Well, that's now called neuroscience. And we have evidence and proof to show that all of these things are interconnected. And if you can tap in and be mindful and pay attention to what's going on with your emotions and your mindset and figure out how that impacts your body, you will quickly be able to see that there is a connection without even going to the doctor. So when I talk to people, um, depending on the audience, I can talk a little bit more like yoga language to certain people at night, maybe not so much to cops, but you can explain all of this in very plain language and just say, All of this is so important because when you don't deal with your shit throughout a career, so we're talking about people who retire, my Mm -hmm. my generation, it's going to rear its ugly head in one way or another. So you may as well deal with it. It can be really hard. And that's why you have options. You have, you know, people who are therapists, clinicians, peer support, coaches to be able to help you through it. Because so many of the people that I know, not all of them, they are retiring poorly. They have physical issues, mental issues, emotional issues, substance abuse issues. And so being able to provide that information and say, how do you want to live the rest of your life? Because in law enforcement, whether we retire on time or earlier, we still have the rest of our lives to live. And what do you want the quality of your life to be? So it's more about, I shouldn't say this, but it's not so much about like getting people healthy holistically to finish out their careers, it's for them to finish out their life, really. Like, how do you want to live your life? How do you want to show up in the world for yourself, for your family, for your friends? And if you, you know, keep the job, the community, because 
It's also about what's important to them, what their purpose is, because I have found, and I was guilty of this too, this is why I struggled so much, is we get really wrapped up in the identity of our professions. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a whole other conversation. And so- Yeah, yeah, that was me. Yeah, same, same. And it- Still is. And I- Unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's hard because I did not expect it when that happened to me. And so just getting people to understand what's the bigger picture in your life, like you can have purpose and you can provide meaning in your life. It doesn't just have to be because you're a cop. Yeah. I, I, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a massive topic. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell guys, this is a job and I keep telling myself, this is a job. As as I look at all my plaques and Mm -hmm. badges and stuff over there, it's a job. It's a, it's a job. That's a job that I love. I still love the job. I still love the profession. My best friends are cops. I train cops every week in jujitsu. Uh, you know, I I, de- I devoted my life. My team devotes their life to mm-hmm. you know improving health and wellness and providing good training to to cops. They're all cops. Like that identity is huge, but also it's like after it's gone, you can still you know love the profession and stuff like that. But God, you got to live your life. Like you don't want to retire a broken body and then be like, man, I gave I gave it all to the system. The system wrecked me. Mm-hmm. And I got nothing in return but a pension. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, it's not valuable. That's a really, uh, really powerful approach. I mean, not. I'll be honest with you. Most people listening to this aren't close to retiring because uh, I think the age demographics like twenty three to twenty nine or twenty seven, yeah. something like that. So, but again, it's important to think about these things when you get there. Like I think even the financial side, being financially stable when you retire, is important. Um, a lot of guys are like, oh, I'm just going to get this retirement. Yeah, retirement may, may not be much in 15 years, you know, makes you guys are also working on some side stuff. You know, I think it's super important. Well, so even um, even though your demographic is younger, here's what I'll say, because most of the, I mean, the recruits I teach and train are all that, young, that yeah. demographic. So there's things that come up. So you may come into this profession thinking like I did, which I did make it to 50 and retire, but- Sometimes that's not always the case. Sometimes we have injuries. Sometimes there's things called investigations. And so life happens. And even the best laid plans, they don't, they don't necessarily pan out. So just getting people to think about these things early on, big picture wise. So like, you know, what is your bigger picture? What is your purpose? How do you want to provide service and meaning in the world beyond just being a cop. I'm not saying that they shouldn't do that and finish out their career, but it can be really helpful to kind of look at these things in that way because you never know what's going to happen. So, right. and and plus it seems like, <clears throat> I don't know, generationally speaking too, there's kind of a different mindset. Um, even though uh, people want to become cops and retire, I see that people also look at maybe other options as they go through their careers, kind of like you, you know, there's other ways like, you know, you probably didn't join your agency and know that in seven, eight years, however long you were on, you were going to go do this other thing. So sometimes you decide that, well, maybe I want to provide service in this way. I've had people that have decided they want to be therapists or they want to do something else, helping people within the profession, but just in a different way, still providing that service. Yeah. And you can do it while you're still active. Yeah. That's, I mean, look at you. We have plenty of guys that are on our team that are still active, that are, that are going to conferences and, mm-hmm. and teaching and, and, all, and, you know, and all this stuff. And I think it's super important to also realize guys like 
what I took away from our conversation uh, the first time, and then and then uh, this conversation is, you know, it's all about it's all about supporting each other, you know, and, but it's also about taking your own initiative to to saying I may not have a problem now, or I may, I, maybe I just don't know it, and and actually doing something about it and being really preventative and and you know like having a resource like for example like yoga. I do yoga. I don't do it like structurally. I do jujitsu, which is obviously the involuntary yoga. But that's but that's kind of my like church. Mm-hmm. That's what fulfills me. That's what makes me feel good sometimes, <laughs> depending on what position I'm in. But I know that yoga is a phenomenal release, and you know I know a lot of people, a lot of manly men don't like yoga because it's they find it. I tell you right now, I mean, yoga will kick your ass ten out of ten times if you, uh, if, you if you have the right teacher. So you know, what advice do you have for those that are maybe looking and they don't know where to start, like? What's a really good starting point for someone maybe looking to kind of be more resilient, to be more aware? So resilience is, you know, like I said, there's so many different areas of resilience. And so I think the first thing is a little bit of self-inquiry. So if you're just kind of like one of those people, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm lost. I don't know where to start. Then it might be a good idea, depending on where you're at, to elicit the help of a coach or a therapist to help walk you through this stuff. Because I can tell you, for me personally, I wasn't able to do any of this alone. And I'm kind of a little bit bitter because I really wish I would have had more guidance and leadership and mentorship throughout my career on some of this instead of having to figure it out myself. So that's the first thing. But but really, like there's different entryways and figuring out what your self-care plan, what your resilience blueprint looks like for you. I told you mine started with yoga, but now it's a lot of a lot of different things. So figuring out what it is that brings you joy and happiness and starting there. So maybe you want to go for a walk with a friend, or maybe you want to go to a yoga class, or you want to go do jujitsu, or you want to go for a bike ride with your family member. So just kind of starting out and figuring out what works for you and and kind of going from there. Because it really just depends because every one of us, you have to kind of meet yourself where you are. We're showing up from a different place. Yeah, no, the uh, great guys. Hey, listen to the expert here. So, Wendy, where can people find you? I'm in Wichita, Kansas, but don't come to my house because <laughs> we do have a lot <laughs> of guns fair. here. My husband, you know. Fair, anyway, fair. <laughs> no, I have uh, I have a podcast, Guns and Yoga. I have a website, WendyHummel.com. I also teach a lot of online classes on the Pause First Academy. So, actually, I just loaded a class last night about negativity bias and and all of that kind of stuff, emotional intelligence, resilience, yoga. So, so those are all the places you can, you can find me. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're looking to hopefully work with you soon. I do have something that I want to say real quick and I might need your help preparing some questions, but, um, uh, I talked to uh, Dr. Huberman and he's coming on the podcast. <gasps> oh my gosh. So I was able to, uh, awesome. I was able to talk to him yesterday and, uh, I was like, Hey man, shot in the dark. You could say no and I'll still love you. I know you're a busy man, but, uh, would you be willing? And he, he's a huge supporter of law enforcement. Mm. He understands that the, the necessity that this profession brings to, and like the stability it brings to this country is insane. And he knows that, uh, there's a lot of health issues that, stem from the stress of this job. So I may be calling you in the near future uh, to help me basically come up with an outline for him that I had to submit to him prior to the conversation so he can prepare. So oh, for sure. Um, yeah. I'm one of the things I really, you know, since I've been doing health coaching over the last couple of years, chronic inflammation, disease, gut health, uh, microbiome. Oh my gosh. Like, so those are the kinds of things I feel like 
would be really yeah, good please. to have him talk about. I'll definitely reaching out because I'm going to reach out to a few people and ask for some topics and some questions because uh, I kind of fanboyed out there for a second. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. And I was all like, shit, I got to be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll be reaching out to you soon to, okay. to, you know, help me with that. But guys, please follow her. Check out her Instagram. Listen to her podcast. She's a great voice of reason. I definitely want to have her back on and um, hopefully we'll We'll have to be able to work together soon. So thank you, Wendy, for coming on and we'll talk soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to follow Wendy, her links are in the show notes below. You can also find a link to her podcast, which is called Guns and Yoga. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. New episodes launch on Monday, every other week.